Hello and welcome to the Thinking LSAT podcast. This is Ben Olson in Washington, D.C. And I have Nathan Fox here in San Francisco. Well, he's not here, but Nathan, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I think this is episode 10. It's very exciting. Oh, oh I always forget to say that. Thank you. No, no worries. Um, so anything cool happened today? Did anything cool happen today? Well, I, I got a couple of interesting updates. Um, I'm having a lot of fun with my class, so we can talk about that. I've, I've been kind of reinventing my syllabus, so I think that's, that's kind of interesting. Um, but I guess maybe the listeners would be interested. We, um, a few episodes back, we talked about diversity in the legal profession, and we put it out there that we were looking for a diverse candidate um, to kind of be our guinea pig to get some free LSAT coaching from the two of us and uh, do periodic updates with the listeners. Um, well, Ben, I haven't told you this yet, but uh, I think I found somebody. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay. Um, so there's a dude in my class named Nate, and um, he, I've chatted him up about it, and he seems like he's willing. So we'll introduce him on a later show, but he's... Um, half black, half white. He scored 142 on his first test. And that was a 142 with like really low logic games. So okay. mm-hmm. what, what do you think our chances are with him? Well, that's good because that's the easiest section to help improve. Yeah, yeah. He had like a dramatic, dramatic split and uh, starting off... I, I also like... 142, I feel like, is a pretty good platform for reaching uh, the high 150s or even the 160s. So, mm-hmm. I mean, at least I've seen that historically. I, I don't know. What do you, do you, would you agree with that? I mean, I sometimes worry when I see like 120 something. I, I have a hard time seeing how they're going to make it. But 140 something, I always feel like they can make it. Yeah, I guess it depends a little. I would. I, I agree with you. I think that if your score is really low, I'm concerned that there's something fundamental about the way the test uh, thinks about things and the way that you think about things that it may be very difficult to move above that. That said, I do remember a student who started with a 122 and um, they asked me, you know, point blank, like, do I have any hope? And I said, well, I, I wouldn't say that you don't have any hope. Let's, let's see what happens after you go through the first lesson, the second lesson, and then we'll take another test after that. And it, it wasn't very many tests later that she was scoring in the low 140s, which, wow. mm-hmm. you know, and so I think part of that was, was that she had never seen the LSAT before. And a lot of people who take the LSAT and score, you know, 140 have never seen the LSAT before. So that by itself is not enough to explain her 122, but maybe just, maybe she didn't quite know, you know, what was going on or how to, how to approach it in any sort of systematic way. And even just a few ideas of like, filling in the bubbles that you don't answer was enough to kind of get her to where she had a more solid foundation to move up from there. And she, she did. So, um, I don't know. I, I, but I, I do agree with you. I think if your score is really low, um, maybe, maybe it's not the best test for you, but you have to wait and see. Yeah. There, there are some, I mean, it's any, it can happen, right? Anything can happen. And I think we've both seen, um, except we've seen situations where people have made it, uh, against, what seemed to be really long odds. Um, but when you start in the 120s, it's like, I, I'm worried that you're just like reading, reading ability is not high enough in a lot of cases. Um, 
So, uh, anyways, when I see someone in the 140s, I get I get pretty excited usually because I think like, oh yeah, this is somebody who, you know, to, if we can move this guy from 140 something to 160, um, you know, that's moving him from like probably not getting into law school to definitely getting scholarships to law school. Yes, yeah, and, you know, that's absolutely. that's where like that's the that's the candidates that I get really excited about because that's like a fundamental shift, like literally changing. Um, this guy's life. So, anyway, mm-hmm. um, and he's like a really interesting guy, smart, funny guy. So we will uh, bring him on very soon, as soon as we can schedule that. Okay, great. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, cool. So um, I guess today on the show we have a couple things that we're going to do, huh? We're going to talk about this book. Yeah. So you you had this book sent to me. Let's Elsa, right? Yeah. I guess. Uh-huh. Or is that is that the name? That's the name of the book. And then the the subtitle is. 180 tips from 180 students on how to score 180 on your LSAT. So, how did you how did you come across this book? And you're actually featured in this book. So, yeah. Tell so, us a bit about it. Um, this guy Jacob got in touch with me, and uh, the the author of it got in touch with me and um, asked if I wanted to be involved. And we did a long form interview. And I think actually I might be able to take those audio files and post them into our podcast feed. So that'd be kind of nice. Maybe the listeners would like to hear that. But the interview is also transcribed into the book. And again, yeah, the book is 180 tips from 180 students on how to score 180 on your LSAT. And uh, so we're going to go through a few of those tips and uh, talk about ones that we agree with and ones that we disagree with. I guess I'd like to know, um, even before we get into that, I would like to know how how's it going with your uh, with your class that you've got going right now. Oh, uh, yeah, it's going well. Um, so we we jumped right into the games uh, as I was mentioning before, and the first game that we did was an ordering game, and then we did a a hybrid game which combines ordering and grouping, and then we went into an older in out game which is actually pretty tough. Um, but I don't know, for some reason, I just like diving into the deep end. And so that opens up a lot of questions about if then statements and, um, contrapositives and what else you can infer from if then statements in, in out games. And I think it's, um, an area where a lot of people, you know, get overwhelmed at first by all the information you can take away from just a simple if then statement. Uh But I think it's also sort of fun because, we talked about it on Saturday for the first time, and then um, we met again on Tuesday, and I found another in-out game that had similar challenges, and people had questions again, but the, the rate at which they understood what we were talking about was just a lot, you know, light years faster. So there are still definitely questions, and I know we're going to have questions again, because it's just a matter of going over this stuff, you know, time and time again until we know know it cold but um it's just fun i guess to see people kind of get it and understand some stuff that i think is pretty complicated i think the way that the in out games i mean i don't mean to digress here but i think that a lot of times people teach them kind of superficially like they they might talk about contrapositives and and then sort of end the discussion but there is a lot of stuff that you can really dig into and know about the test which i think a lot of test takers don't know um and so then, you know, it kind of gives people an edge up and it challenges people to sort of push themselves mentally, I think. 
Yeah, I mean, you'll do games like multiple ways in class, won't you? Do, do you sometimes say like, or at least this is something I do, is I'll actually draw a, like a, white, a line right down the middle of the whiteboard and I'll say, um, you know, I, I can actually see a couple different approaches here, so let's talk about those. And so I'll start doing the game one way on one side of the board and then I'll start doing the game the other way on the other side of the board and then let people sort of think about which one, you know, which, which kind of approach they would like better. Uh, yeah, I don't do that as deliberately, but I will, um, when people ask questions about different ways of thinking about it, I will draw them and then kind of point out the pros and cons to both, including the, the method I'm highlighting, I guess, and why I ultimately prefer that to the others. But explaining too why I think you know different people might prefer another method but not so not as uh I guess a lot more hand-holding than you might do that that's that's pretty um I mean that's that's smart I think to let people kind of figure it out on their own they're more likely to remember what they think is best yeah well I mean I also one of the main things that I'm trying to teach them is to improvise right I, I say I'm not teaching you um recipes I'm teaching you fundamental techniques of cooking. Like, mm -hmm. I, I don't want you to memorize. This is not baking. This is not like memorize how many cups of sugar and how much baking powder and you know exactly what temperature to put the oven on. Because I just don't think that's how. I just don't think that's how these games really work. Instead, it's like I'm going to teach you this little technique of um, uh, you know I call it seat the assholes first. If you've got two players who hate each other and there's just two groups. You can mm -hmm. fill up one of the spots uh, in each one of the groups with the two guys that hate each other. And like just that little trick, it's a silly little trick, but like once they know that little trick, then they're going to see all sorts of different contexts in which they can apply that trick. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so it's like, I, I guess I need to break them of the mindset that like, well, there's grouping games and that's a certain type of games and on that certain type of games I'm always going to do the exact same thing because um, that's an easy way to to choke when you're confronted with a game for example a game that asks you to group two different ways or or a game that asks you to group and sequence at the same time mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know what I mean so I'm, yeah. I'm like I'm just trying to give them like little tools rather than um give them like the exact formula for, for, for solving the game. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And then I guess, so it does sound like, I think you do do a little bit more hand-holding than I do because um, you're, you're even like, you're picking out games for them to do, right? You're, you're saying like, okay, let's talk about this one first. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the way I've always done it since I, since I started was I just say, okay, here's the December 2011 official LSAT go mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. we do you know i've been doing this uh, so this time around i'm i'm doing less uh full tests as homework and i'm doing more 35 minute sections in class i've learned that so what i'm doing is i'm, I'm giving a, a ton of optional homework i'm especially mm -hmm. out of my logical reasoning encyclopedia i'm like mm -hmm. pointing out you know like here's a few different question types i want you to work on and here's like 50 questions that you can go i want the people who have unlimited time to have just unlimited work that they can do if, if they really want mm -hmm. to. Um, mm -hmm. And then in class, I'm doing a ton of 35-minute sections where it's like, I just say, okay, 35 minutes, go, and then I let them work on it for, a little, for 35 minutes. 
and then mm-hmm. I just explain it to them. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there with the logic games, it's like I don't even know. You know, I don't even look at the section. It's just like, yep, here's a section of games. Go do it, and then we just muddle our way through. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it sounds like we do something similar. And what when when I get closer to the end of the class, so like halfway through the the hundred hour class, well, actually maybe only a third of the way through, we start doing full-length sections, but the first few lessons are more, I guess, controlled, you could yeah. say. Yeah. So. Yeah, I don't know. I, I can see definitely the merits of both sides there. Um, I, I got an email from one of my online students. I get, I, get a, I get a little bit of pushback every once in a while from the students saying, um, wait, what, I'm, I'm supposed to be doing full tests like right off, right off the bat? And they're, they're, <laughs> because they're like, they they're used to getting um, fed a bunch of theory before they dive in, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And what I always say is that I I just see it as in a lot of ways it's like riding a bike, and that you do not need to read the fundamental theories of bicycle riding before you start riding the bike. But like what I really want them to do is just get up on the bike and crash a couple times. Yeah. No, I I uh, I absolutely agree with that, and I think studies support that significantly. The idea of working from examples to concepts rather than from concepts to examples, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, um, but that's like the reverse of of the way that most I think most university courses. Um, oh. Historically, I think most teaching has been the exact opposite of that. Yeah. Well, um, have you heard of the book Made to Stick? Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. So in it, the the two brothers, the Heath brothers, who wrote that, talk about you know why that happens often, which makes sense. People become so familiar with their subject matter that they they jump right to the the general rules of the game rather than giving people experience in the uh, in the weeds. Uh, yeah, it'd but, be easy um, for us to do that, right? I mean, we could dive right in and be like. Well, here's how you link conditional statements together, and the kids would be like, "Conditional what? Yeah, what the? <laughs> yeah, huh? Yeah, I should read so, that book. I should reread it. I that's why I like your your just to to endorse your book a little bit. I that's that's the reason I like using it is because it works from examples, you know, to concepts because you do an example and then you talk about it. So I guess in some ways I'm kind of doing what you're doing in your book. Just saying, hey, here's here's an example, and then let's talk about it. It's I've just gone and, and chosen some of those examples beforehand, um, more deliberately, I guess. Yeah. Hey, let me ask you this: um, because you're using the book, and I'm I'm using the book in class now more than I used to use it. Um, the way I've always taught logical reasoning is similar to the way I do logic games, which is on logical reasoning, I just say, here's a 35 minute section of logical reasoning. Go. And then I read out the answers, and then I say, okay, which ones did you miss? Or which ones do you want to talk about? And then mm-hmm. they tell me. And so literally on the you know, first lesson, they'll be, call, they'll be saying, number 12. And then I look at number 12, and it's a matching flaw question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I just, and I just do it. And so <clears throat> what I've done um, this time is we encountered, like on the first night, we encountered... Um, a matching flaw question, and we encountered a sufficient assumption question, 
those were the two that I really remember we spent time on was matching flaw and sufficient assumption. And then as homework, I sent them a whole bunch more matching flaw and sufficient assumption questions. Now, I know that would be like no one else does it that way. Because everyone else, and I'm sure you're doing it this way too, you've chosen like these are the question types that we're going to talk about first. Yes. Is that right? Uh, well, um, yes, in the sense that we're talking about the same question type in class uh actually two question types at the same time so for example sufficient assumption and necessary assumption and then people go home and do more of those types but what i've been doing more recently is mixing those types with types that we've talked about previously okay. so every homework assignment is what we talked about plus what we've talked about in the past so that you're you're slowly getting exposed to more and more question types. And by the end, you're doing um, all of them. And then we do sections, 35-minute sections. And we're doing 35-minute sections all along in the sense that you know they're taking tests on Saturday at full-length exams and then talking about those during the extra help session or something like that. So there, it's not – it's just a little more, I guess, it's, it's easing into the question types – um, more slowly. Now, one thing I do encourage them to do, and that is if they want to jump around in your book, since it is organized by question type, if they're not doing well on inference questions and they see that right off the bat based on the diagnostic exam or subsequent live exams, um, they should just go right to those because that's not a book that we, we don't use it in the class. Yeah, you don't make them lug it back and forth to No. <laughs> to <the> class, right? <laughs> it's too big. So... Well, I guess so, it's kind of a mix of things going on. What uh, just so I wanted to know what type you 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 like to start with? What what type of question did you assign first, or what two types did you assign first? Well, I used to start with con conclusion questions and reasoning questions because it was a as a nice opportunity to really make clear in everyone's mind what the difference was between a premise a conclusion, an intermediate conclusion, get those parts of the arguments all delineated, even yeah. though they're not very common question types. They're also a little easier, so it's kind of a nice launching point. So you're talking about those, the uh, like strategy of argumentation or uh, the specific like argument part questions. Yes, yes. And those questions. and conclusion questions. Yes, together. Because I feel like the same skills are being tested. Your ability to pinpoint exactly where the main conclusion that is. That sounds and then very... Work I, my, I could just speculate... But I would imagine that that would lead, that would be pretty dry. Um, and I, I, I would guess that some people would have, pretty, have some difficulty following that um, in the very beginning. Uh, well, they tend to be sort of like an easier question type, I think. Well, the conclusion I mean, questions for sure. But I don't know about the argument part ones. Yeah. No, I think, um, but with... When people, you know, the the, the question types, uh, or when the, sorry, the answer choices in reasoning and role questions are a little abstract. And so yeah. I think it creates good discussion for figuring out exactly where those parts of the argument are. Okay. Uh, the reason I like it is because then once they have a very clear conception of the different parts of an argument and how a sentence can have two parts of an argument in, you know, just one sentence... Yeah. Um, and stuff like that. When we encounter flaw questions, I mean, as as we were talking about before, you know, the most important part is to identify the inclusion, and usually that's pretty easy. So, 
um, that's not a huge issue. But sometimes uh, it, it's not, or they've misidentified the conclusion, and it's sort of a, a bummer to get a question wrong just because you've misidentified the conclusion and then kind of been evaluating it the wrong way. Yeah. So is that still the way you're doing it then? Those, those are your first two types that you talk about? Um, well, actually, I, I'm in the process of, of testing out talking about flaw questions first yeah. because there are so many of them. So I want to tackle questions that have an impact. At the same time, I still want to, to get that foundation there, so I may have to include the discussion on identifying those things, even though we won't go into those question types until later. Cool. Yeah, I like to start with flaw too. I mean, I, I put flaw in the front of the logical reasoning encyclopedia because I just wanted people to like just start off attacking and recognizing all of the flaws. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. you're right that they they do struggle to identify the conclusion of the argument a lot in the beginning. Um, if someone said to you, uh, "How to identify the conclusion?" What would you say? Well, um, I guess I would give them examples, the most important thing is trying to figure out what part of the argument is supported by the other parts. But the examples I like to give are, are a situation where you have an argument that starts out with the opinion of someone else. Republicans think that the world is not getting warmer, for example, or something like that. And then, but they are wrong because yada, yada, yada. And so then the but they are wrong is the main conclusion because it's being supported. And um, I guess I think just people becoming aware of the fact that there are often opinions of other people, there are pieces of evidence, and then there's something that's supported by that evidence. That alone is enough to help people start, you know, eliminating things that could be the main conclusion and thus make it more likely for them to narrow it down to what is the main conclusion. I do a thing that I think is kind of nifty that the students seem to like a lot, where I write the word therefore really big on the whiteboard, mm-hmm. and then I ask them to use this as a trick for if they're not sure what the conclusion is. So like the argument you gave was this, um, the earth is getting warmer, Republicans think the earth is not getting warmer, therefore uh, the Republicans are wrong. So um, if they had, if they weren't sure whether Republicans think the Earth is not getting warmer or Republicans are wrong, is the conclusion, then I, mm-hmm. I like them to read it both ways with the therefore in the middle. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. if they would go like, um, it's uh, the the Earth is getting warmer, Republicans are wrong, therefore Republicans think the Earth is not getting warmer. It's like was that the, was that the way that the argument goes, or try it again, mm-hmm. reverse it with the, again with the big therefore in the middle. So um, Republicans think the Earth is not getting warmer, therefore Republicans are wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, which way sounded right? You know, like trust your gut. Which way seemed like it made sense? Mm-hmm. And whichever mm-hmm. way it made sense, then whatever you said last is that's the conclusion of the argument. Yeah, yeah. Can you picture That's that. Great. You picture that. What I would do on the whiteboard. Yes. No. I. I can. Um, I. Uh, I guess I do something similar. It's. It's almost like a one eighty, but with the word because. 
because I'm asking them, you know, would it make sense to make this your reason or to uh, make yeah, yeah. the other thing your reason? Um, but no, it's a, it's a great test because, <laughs> uh, you know, when you insert either because or therefore, I mean, it'd be flipped around, but, and then you say it, a lot of s- sentences just don't, or I guess combination of sentences don't make any sense when you do it one way, but they make a lot of sense the other way. I'm going to try it out your way because that, that it is like the one, 180 of what I do, but I, I think your way might actually be even a little more intuitive to say, where is the because? Like, what, where's the why in this? Where's the, what's the reason? Because mm-hmm. if you can identify the reason, then that's not the conclusion. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's good, I like that. That's cool, I'll give that a shot. Cool. Interesting. Oh, can I tell you one other thing that I'm really excited about that I'm doing? Yes. I'm doing yes. it tonight. Um, I am having a panel of former uh, Fox LSAT students, Fox LSAT alums, okay. are coming to talk to my class, just like a Q&A. Um, but it's totally awesome because there are three, um, it's a, one of them, she's a rising 2L at Howard University and she's here back for the summer because she's working in the United States District Court Northern District in Oakland. She's a yeah. legal intern. And then another uh, guy is a rising 2L at UC Berkeley and he um, also is doing He's working in the, um, I guess, city of San Francisco, like working for the San Francisco city attorney for the summer. And the third one is she's going to be a 1L this fall at Harvard. Um, And this is the second one of these panels that I've done. I I just like invite back different alumni every time. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. um, it worked awesome last time because, you know, my current students have all sorts of questions yeah. For the panel. And the panel, like, they're all, I mean, they're, like, really going to be lawyers. You know, <laughs> so they can ask practical questions about, like, lawyering and internships and stuff um, that, that I can't answer. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's a double, it's a really great, like, benefit, I think, for everybody because it helps me to, like, strengthen the relationship with some of my alums. But then yeah. I also get to introduce my current students to the alums, and then I try to connect everybody via LinkedIn. Um, I'm really big into like the big, you know, bigger networking power um, of this yeah. whole thing. So, anyway, that, that's cool. So, do you do that during class or before class or during at class? A different time? Yeah. We'll take wow. yeah, we'll take a half hour, forty five minutes, or whatever for them to, because I mean I've just learned that over the years that it's it's like at least a quarter of my class time is spent talking about just, they want to know, they want to know how, you know, they want to know what's the application like to Harvard? How do I, you know, how do I do this? Or um, Mm -hmm. they want to know like, so I've heard that some schools do interviews, like how does that go? And I'm sure that that question will be asked tonight and Alice will be able to talk about her interview that she presumably had with Harvard before they admitted her. Um, Or they'll say something like, I, you know, I get this question every single year, I, or every class asks me, so how competitive is it for, you know, with the grades in law school? Can you tell me about grades in law school? How, how hard, you know, what, what is that like? And yeah. I can tell them what my perspective was like, but I would like to hear what, I want to know what it's like at Howard University. I've never, I don't even, yeah. you know, I've never 
been to Howard University. I don't know any, so I don't know anything about it. And I think it'll be just great to, um, I don't know, I like the cross-pollination kind of a thing that happens. <laughs> no, that's cool. I'll, I'll def- I'm going to try that out. That's cool. Yeah, it's I'm cool. Sure there's, I mean, there's, there's got to be some people who would be excited to do that. Plus, it's just fun to be on a panel. When you're a law student, you know, most people don't call you up and say, hey, can you come on a panel? <laughs> well, yeah, so, I mean, it's amazing, right? Like, I've asked, I've probably, you know, I've, I've only just started asking my alums. If, if I have any alums listening, by the way, that want to, that want to, I don't know why you would be listening to this if you were an, an alum <laughs> in law school. But if you are especially bored and you're listening to my podcast, even though you're already in law school and you want to be on the panel, um, yeah, just send me an email. And uh, I'd love to reconnect and introduce you to the class. But yeah, I would just suggest for you, Ben, if you wanted, I mean, I don't know how you keep in touch with your former students, but LinkedIn is just incredible. Um, I was, I've been um, playing around, I think we've talked about this before, um, I've been playing around with like a CRM, this uh, Insightly, I was using Insightly mm-hmm. to try to like build a database of all of my former students and like keep track of where they are and stuff. Yeah. And then I realized that if I just go on LinkedIn and go to the, the um, Harvard University page on LinkedIn, mm-hmm. LinkedIn automatically populates the right-hand column of that page with all of my contacts who are currently at or graduated from Harvard Law. Oh, wow. So it's like I don't have to do any of that shit anymore. So I've just decided, like, CRM, no, not doing it. I'm not, gonna, I'm not even going to bother. It's just I'm just going to hammer on all my classes. Like, you have to connect to me on LinkedIn, and that's how we're going to keep in touch. Um, yeah, I guess I, I guess I better get a profile picture up there, huh? On LinkedIn, <laughs> <laughs> a picture right would on. be a good start. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh man. Okay. Yeah, I'll do that. That's easy. And then did I all, did I also tell you about I had one success story already with my current class? I'm I'm uh, encouraging my current class to uh, connect to me on LinkedIn and then to look for people on LinkedIn that I'm connected to that they would like to talk to because oh, okay. you mm-hmm. know I I mean. It's got to be half of my class is like not sure whether law school is actually a good investment for them. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're asking me all or or they're like, uh, yeah, I think I want to go to law school, but I don't know exactly what kind of law I want to practice. And it, and I'm like, well, you don't have to know exactly what kind of law you want to practice, but in your first semester, you're going to immediately be like hustling for jobs for summer for summer jobs, or at least you <laughs> should be hustling for summer jobs. So it'd be a good idea to do some of the, um, you know, outreach and just like learning about different areas of law um, as soon as possible. So I had, so some people have been taking me up on it. They've been searching through my LinkedIn contacts to try to find attorneys and law students that they would like to talk to. Like, okay, I'm interested in Stanford law. Who do you know at Stanford law? And I can make those connections. Mm. Um, It's easy to make those connections via LinkedIn. It's like, that's exactly what LinkedIn is designed to do. Um, but I had a student who she wanted, um, she knows male attorneys, but she doesn't know any female attorneys. And she like really wanted to talk to female attorneys about what it's like to be a female attorney. Mm -hmm. And she also, um, very specifically wanted to talk to someone in medical malpractice. And I said, oh, geez, I don't know. I mean, that seems like a tough, this seems very specific. Like, I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to (laughs) fulfill that request, but I looked on LinkedIn, I immediately found like three different people who were female attorneys who I was connected to, who had some connection to medical practice in some area. Um, and 
I sh forwarded the profiles to this student of mine. The student responded immediately and said, hey, I would love to talk to this girl because I went to the same undergraduate university as she did and she's doing exactly what I would like to do. And we did the request through LinkedIn. The attorney responded within like, literally responded within five minutes and was wow. enthusiastic about it. Like, yes, let's do it. This is awesome. I want to talk to this girl. Wow. <laughs> and I mean, if you think about what the typical, you know, if, the, if, if she had just started like randomly cold calling medical malpractice attorneys, like, hey, I want to learn about medical malpractice law. I mean, no way. I, oh, yeah. What I usually say is you're going to have to call 30 people and you, you're going to get, you know, one of them is going to let you talk to them on the phone for five minutes. Yeah. Um, but with this, it's like, I just, it was unbelievable. Um, and it gave me the opportunity to reconnect with this student who, she was my student like six years ago. And I had no idea what she was doing. I hadn't, you know, run across, we had not crossed paths at all. And, um, but it's like, there you go. Win, win, seems like win <laughs> for, for everybody. Yeah. So, well, there you go. That's the commercial for LinkedIn. I will do it. I will do it. That, that You've motivated me. So two <laughs> things now, a panel and LinkedIn. I got it. <laughs> LinkedIn will help you to organize the panel. You know, I mean, really, yes. like, it'll be very easy. Yeah. Um, you'll even be able to figure out like who's home for the summer, you know, or who's, who's back in D.C. for the summer uh, if you wanted to grab them like, while they're here. Yeah. Yeah. So. Sounds good. So, um, oh, did you, sorry, did you have anything else? No, that's, I, I, that's pl more than enough of me. <laughs> Come on, Nathan, just go right ahead. Just take it. Um, so I, should we dive into these tips? Does it sound good? Yes, I would love to dive into the tips. So this book is, again, called Let's LSAT, uh, and the author is Jacob Erez. I think it's Erez is how you say it, E-R-E-Z. The book is available on Amazon, so we're giving him a little bit of a plug here. And there's 180 of these tips, so let's dive in. What, what, what uh, caught your eye, Ben? Well, so um, let's... I want to talk about tip, actually, which one do I like the most? I'm looking at tips eight and nine and 10. I like all of them. Um, I'm going to talk about tip 10 because uh, it's a little out there, but I think it's, there is merit to this. So um, I guess I should just go ahead and read it, right? Does that make the most sense? It's not that long. It's like yeah, a paragraph. I've got it. Okay. I've got it in front of me. Go ahead. Okay. Cool. So this is tip 10 from Seth G. He got a 175. And he says, I found out about a certain idea that can help you with your LSAT study as well as improving your performance on test day. The idea is meditation. I saw a t-shirt that said, meditation is not what you think. And that is exactly the idea. You don't need any software or hardware to meditate. So don't get fooled into buying all kinds of equipment. Simply sit on your chair or on your bed in a somewhat dark and quiet room. Close your eyes and focus on how your lungs are inhaling and exhaling. If any thoughts come up, just push them aside. The idea is that it will help you concentrate so as not to get distracted by unrelated thoughts. This is helpful in all three sections during the LSAT, but for me, it was especially helpful on the reading comprehension section because I would get extremely bored and my mind would wander. After about a week of meditating 20 minutes a day, I can happily report that the problem went away, although I continued to meditate afterwards. So, um, 
the reason this one stuck out to me is that literally last week, or well, I'd say the last three weeks, I've been listening to the Tim Ferriss podcast, and he interviews a lot of successful people, and almost everyone he interviews mentioned that they used meditation in some way to help them succeed. Not everyone, but a lot of people. And so it kind of surprised me because I've, I've never meditated or whatever. Um, never thought that was my thing or that I needed it. And um, then he interviewed Sam Harris, who is a philosopher, I think, who talks a lot about religion and society. I think he's an atheist, um, but he's really big into meditation. He's really big into things that I guess, recreate a spiritual experience without a, a spiritual or religious reason for doing so. So um, if you search uh, for Sam Harris and how to meditate, uh, a blog post will come up. He's a prolific blogger, and um, it's the first search result in Google. But on that page, uh, he has a 9-minute and 20-minute um, audio that you can listen to and it will help you meditate. So I tried it out and it was exactly what, like what Seth says here. Um, meditation is not what you think. And he tells you basically to close your eyes and focus on your breathing. And whenever a thought comes up to try to refocus on your breathing. So the idea is to just constantly not let thoughts, I mean, thoughts will come into your mind, but then and you refocus on the breath. Now, this this all seems sort of crazy to me, honestly, or it did a, a few weeks ago. But but it's it surprisingly, it, it, it is really like earth-shattering, at least for me. So what happened was I, I just tried it. I listened to the audio that Sam Harris had created, and it was nine minutes long. And during the audio, he says things like, you know, when thoughts come into your mind, just refocus on breathing or whatever. And you'll notice things in, in your environment and they may make you uncomfortable or they may make you, you know, you might feel like you should be distracted by them, such as noises or whatnot. And when you, but when you become aware of those things, those noises or those feelings or those emotions or those thoughts, you know, if you're thinking about something that, that happened at work that wasn't good, that was bad, um, just be aware of the fact that you're thinking of that and let that thought go away or that, you know, just be aware of that emotion. There's no, nothing that we're trying to accomplish with this meditation except for awareness of your environment. And so my kids were running all around me. I thought I would be like, you know, shut up, stop it. But actually that's like the point is that you're supposed to just sort of become aware of all these things that are moving on around you, but not really be affected by them. Or at least, I mean, I think you still are affected by them, but just become aware of them. Okay, so anyways, when this when this ended, I was astoundingly calm. Like, you know, normally uh, the kids open the refrigerator, they climb up inside of it, they start pulling food out because they're trying to get something in the back. The, the refrigerator door has been open for five minutes because they're still standing in there and food is falling. And, you know, I, I tried to just say, okay, uh, let's, let's close the refrigerator door. I tried to be cool, but it, it, underneath my <laughs> calm exterior, it, it kind of builds over time, you know? But none of this was affecting me after doing this. And when I thought about the things that I had to do that day, um, it was much easier for me to say no to things that 
I might feel pressured to do, or, oh, I've got to take care of this, or I've got to take care of that. Just, it's almost like I was sort of rising above all these things that were pressing upon me. And it was just like, well, this is the most important thing. So this is what I should go work on. Um, and kind of ignoring the distractions around me. Well, um, I think that meditation, I, granted, I did not do this before I took the LSAT officially. And now when I take the LSAT, I'm, I'm not nervous because nothing's really on the line. But I do believe that this can have a huge impact on people's anxiety towards the test before they take it. Because I, I know a lot of people are just, they're constantly kind of stressed about the test. And I do think that this idea of inhaling and exhaling um, is actually really important as well, because this is unrelated, but I um, remember reading, I remember learning about the fight, flight and fight response, right? And when you get anxious and you start to, get into the mode where you're either going to fight whatever is making you anxious or you're going to flight, you're going to run away from it. Your blood either goes to your hands or your legs. And it also goes to the center of your brain, the, the core part of your brain, which is not the thinking part. It's the emotional part. And so blood is going away from the thinking parts of your brain, the prefrontal cortex and so forth, when you get anxious at the very moment that you need to do reasoning and logical thinking and so on. So it's, it's not a good combination, right? But apparently, if you take a deep breath, the physiological response in the brain apparently is within five seconds or, or 10 seconds, it immediately reverses that blood flow and blood starts flowing back to the prefrontal cortex and away from the whatever the center of the brain is called. I don't know. I, I already forgot. But the I think that has, and that's been proven through studies or something. And so I think that's a very practical application of when you're taking the test, if you just stop and take a slow, deep breath, you can decrease the effects of anxiety. I'm not saying you can get rid of it, but the, 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 real, the very real effects on your ability to think during the test. Yeah, um, you know, I, whether or not the reader or the listeners are going to like get excited about meditation uh, as a practice. I do. I think we can all agree that the um, there's a, a huge benefit from just taking a deep breath. Um, mm -hmm. I find myself giving that advice all the time. Um, even I, I can. I'm, it's probably a little bit obnoxious because I tell people like random strangers who call me. Um, they call me like, and I can just hear the panic about about the test. They're just mm -hmm. people are so frazzled, you know. They're busy with work and they're just insane about the test, and they're worried it's coming up. And now, how am I ever going to get into law school? This test is so hard. And what about my personal statement? Oh my god, I have to do this whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and then I end up I end up telling people like, okay, so how about you, can we just like take a one like really deep breath for just a second, <laughs> please? Mm -hmm. Because yeah. um, and, and I think that on the test, I mean, I would say n not just on the reading comprehension, but on every section of the test, I think it's really important for people to understand that, that they have to be in charge of the test, not let the test be in charge of them. Mm -hmm. And so when they feel that rising panic, like they read a logical reasoning argument and it doesn't make any sense, and then they are frantically going through the answer choices, and then they realize that A looks good, B looks good, C looks good, 
they don't understand D, they don't understand E, and then they're like, oh, what the fuck, what am I going to do now? And then they reread the argument, and then they reread the argument, and then they read all the answer choices again. It's like, okay, <laughs> you, you really now, you need to like, literally close your eyes, put the test away, because you, you can put it away, right? By just closing your eyes, you can say, okay, I'm taking a break. I'm taking a mm -hmm. timeout. And yeah. that timeout can be five seconds or 10 seconds or 15 seconds. And just take a deep breath. And then when you're ready, on your terms, you attack that question again. Mm -hmm. It's not going to work 100% of the time, but you do need to do something to put like an interrupt in there where you're going to break it's all it's like rebooting the computer you know you're going to mm -hmm. you're going to break that unending panic cycle so yeah. yeah i mean i i think that to to at least that extent i think that the the one deep breath meditation i think is is really good um yeah how have you uh, have you continued your your new meditation practice Yes, yes. It, uh, so it, I, I find that I usually don't want to do it because there's a lot of things going on. I just want to kind of move on. It's like, oh, this is going to take 10 minutes. This is a waste of my time. But whenever I do, I always, it, it somehow helps me refocus and reprioritize and have more willpower to sort of ignore the, the noise and focus on what's important. So I, you know, I'm going to be a little bit more of a, of a, uh, salesman here and say that this meditation is going to be good for people prepping for the test because I think it, it it's only nine minutes, but I think it would make their prep time, you know, the two hours that they spend more effective. It's awesome. I, I, uh, I will check in with you in the next episode to see if you're still doing it. Um, I yeah. actually, I would like to do it. So maybe I can get some help from you. Um, Maybe you can ask me next time uh, sure, if yeah. I've been doing it. Because really, nine minutes a day, I ought to be able to find nine minutes a day. Well, I would, I mean, I would, my only challenge would be just to try it once. Because I listened to, you know, I was kind of like, why are all these people talking? These are hedge fund managers. These are um, big, you know, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs that we're talking about. They're like, oh, yes, I attribute all my success to meditation. I was like, what? What? What are they doing? They're just sitting there, you know. But um, so that's why I tried it, and that first time was just really su surprising to me. But um, I should add that I've also suggested in the past to some of my students to go to testanxietyguru.com. Okay. And that I hope there's still a free sample on there, but um, you can download an MP3, which actually sort of takes you through a meditation process as well. Where the guy, I think the guy's name is also Ben, but he. He tells people to, you know, sit down, to close their eyes. And then it's much more talking. It's not like your typical meditation where you're kind of in your head quietly for a long time. Um, he's talking a lot about the test. He asks you to imagine going to the test and what's going to happen. And I think uh, the exercise can be helpful for some people in the sense that if, like, you're kind of a laid back guy, but, you know, some people are so stressed out about every little thing that this can help them sort of say, look, how bad is it really going to be? And when this bad thing happens, what are you going to do? Because a lot of times I think the anxiety comes from the fact that we don't know or we, we think something really horrible is going to happen if we miss a few questions or if whatever happens 
And so then, but if we think about, well, okay, if this happens or if my pencil breaks or if the person next to me is coughing, what will I do? I'm just going to keep going forward. Or we realize that the answer to that is always a pretty simple thing. Maybe our fears are unfounded. We're really fearing something that's not there. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's, that's awesome. Um, let's, let's check in again on this on the, on the next episode. Okay, cool. Is there another one of the tips that you want to talk about? Um, well, the, the tip nine right before that from Mark L., who got a 178, is he talks about exercise. And he says, exercising helps you think more clearly. I know these are not like meditation and exercise are not tips that are directly related to the LSAT. But I do think if your overall you know, well-being is grounded, it makes it easier to perform on test day. So these are sort of indirect tips, but I agree with this, and, and studies back this up. If you study, I mean, if you exercise, you um, it develops your brain. I don't know how. I don't remember exactly what the study said, but it, it's it's easier to think and, and all that stuff. Yeah, so makes a lot of sense. Okay, so exercise sounds great. Meditation sounds great. What else? Any? Did you see any that are like specifically LSAT-related? Oh, you don't like my... My outside tips here? Well, no, because I want to find one that's bogus that I can argue with. Oh, you want to find one that's bogus. Okay. Because, um. <laughs> well, so let me just, I want to make this point about this book. I think that the book is awesome uh, for, for giving you ideas about things to try. Um, but I also think that the book is 180 tips, which is too many, from 180 people whose only qualification is that they scored high on the test. So yes. <laughs> a lot of these a lot of these tips are I haven't read the whole book but a lot I've read enough of the book to know that a lot of the tips I I disagree with. So I I would um you know I think that the book is awesome I, I'm amazed that uh, this dude by the way Jacob he made the book uh, while he was like studying for uh the LSAT he's starting um law school this fall. Um but uh so it's a it's a really pretty remarkable achievement. He's a a hard charger, I guess, but uh, I will say that, like, I don't, I do not advocate that somebody tries to incorporate all 180 of these tips into their LSAT study. So anyway, <laughs> yeah. So uh, speaking of uh, interesting tips, so tip number two, um, I didn't know what I thought about this. This is the last. This is the tip is to study and practice in different environments. And I actually agree with that principle in general, yeah. but uh, I, I, I wasn't too sure if this would be helpful. At the end, um, this person says, practice with, a, practice with a reading comprehension passage while walking down the street or wandering around the <laughs> sorry, <laughs> or wandering around the grocery store. I was just trying to imagine myself actually <laughs> figure out the main point as I was walking down the aisle, potentially running into people. Do yeah. not give up until you can get the questions right under any circumstance. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, that one made me chuckle a little bit, but I don't know, what, do you agree or, or what well, do you think? Well, I like the first half of it. I do like study and practice the LSAT questions under different environments. Um, I think one mistake that people make a lot is that they'll like only ever study in the perfect silence of their own <laughs> um, office or you yes. know whatever yeah. mm -hmm. bedroom, mm -hmm. and yeah. I think it's important that people study with some kinds of distractions. the The perfect kind of distraction, I think, is to replicate the test environment as closely as you can 
which is not perfect silence. So I, I really like the public library for, for this oh, yeah. purpose. Um, go, go to the library, because the library is supposed to be quiet, but it's not perfectly quiet. You're going to hear some footsteps. You're going to hear some coughing. There's other people in there rummaging around. There might be a distraction from time to time. Um, as we've talked about on the show in the past, a lot of time the proctor will actually be the noisiest thing in the room. The proctor mm-hmm. will have really noisy shoes or will be hovering over your shoulder or uh, will be having their phone ring. Um, so I think the public library is, is just perfect for that where there's just like that one possible occasional distraction noise and to, to train yourself to, um, to power through that. I also really think... Um, that Starbucks is a is a great place because Starbucks has kind of enough bustle that it's like white noise. Um, mm-hmm. But there will be a thing every once in a while where there'll be some kind of a distraction, but I think you should be able to, you know, not maybe for a whole test, but for 35 minutes, you should be able to sit there and do one section in a Starbucks. Um, I have certainly had students take this to the extreme. I had a student who uh, who would... <laughs> She would, on her way to work, she had like a very crowded Muni ride, San Francisco, uh, that's the, the train. She was on one of the light rail trains. And mm-hmm. it's like she would have to stand on the train, like in a jammed, moving train with people mm-hmm. everywhere. And she was like doing LSAT test while she was on the train, standing. Yeah. And to me, that is like a little bit ridiculous. And I, I think that. The, there's, there's actually a possible pitfall there, which is I really don't want students to train themselves for failure. I want them to train themselves for success. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. like if you study in an environment, I mean, like if you're literally walking down the aisle of the grocery store, trying not to run over small children with your, with your cart, uh, you're, not, it's just, you're just not gonna be able to focus as, as closely as you should. And you are not going to perform as well as you could. And then I, I worry that like what you're doing there is you're, you're actually like practicing being shitty at the test. Yep. So Makes same, perfect sense. Yeah. So, and then same thing for people who practice at midnight. You know, same thing for people who pull these like 12-hour crazy study sessions. I think mm-hmm. all you're really doing there is like you're teaching yourself the lesson subconsciously. You're teaching yourself like, oh it's difficult to do the LSAT. And when I'm doing the LSAT, I'm usually like bummed out and tired and uh, angry and, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'd yeah. rather see people like get themselves into test mode on a Saturday morning when they've got some energy and go to the library and sit there and, and then do the test. I think that that's probably a better tip. Yeah. No, I think that's excellent. I While you were talking, it did remind me of... One tip, which I haven't given my students recently, and that is um, sometimes when people are looking for ways to study for the LSAT, you know, in the in-between when you have five minutes here or there and you're, you're riding the metro somewhere or something like that, um, I do know that sometimes people will take a picture of a logical reasoning question that they had struggled with, not just a random one, one that they found really hard kind of conceptually to get their mind wrapped around. They'll take a picture of it and then they'll look at it while they're, you know, they'll reread it again while they're going somewhere in a taxi or whatever and then kind of remind 
themselves of, oh yeah, okay, so that's why A is correct, this is why D is wrong. And that sort of, you know, I guess review can solidify something that was initially just very foreign or hard to to grapple with. Yeah, that that, that does make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I guess what I mean is like I wouldn't be doing full tests and scoring myself. Oh, no, 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 absolutely. Stuff. And I don't mean to suggest that. I'm just saying it reminded me of a way to kind of fill that downtime, but it's not your, <laughs> that's not your default, default you know, study plan by but any See, means. everyone who's riding the train has an even better thing that they can do now to fill their do- downtime. <laughs> that's right, of course. They should be listening to this. <laughs> um. So here's a tip that, you know, so just an example of where I would take these tips with a grain of salt. Tip number five. My number one tip would be to read the question stem before the stimulus. This is a must. The reason is because blah, 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 blah. We've talked about this in the past. I think it's just a horrible idea to read the question stem before you read the stimulus. So that's not a good tip. Um, But, you know, there, there are a lot in here that are that are awesome, actually. I'm, yeah. I'm going through them again. I'm actually I'm, I'm, I'm pretty impressed. I think a lot of them are good. You wanted to talk about the process of elimination one, huh? Tip number 12. Oh, yeah, yes. Because I know in your book you say that you want people to be pretty aggressive with the answer choices, right? I don't, correct me I'm, if I'm misunderstanding you, but you want them to be pretty aggressive with the answer choices and so that sometimes they're eliminating all five, because they're just like, this is such a bad answer, bad, 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 and then, oops, we've eliminated all five, but they, you say that aggressiveness is needed um, as you go through the answers. Is that right? Yes. Um, I, think that, I think that if you, what I like to say is that if you don't occasionally eliminate all five, that you're not being critical enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that what, what I really got to get students to do is like, if, if they read the question and then they look at the answer choices and they like think that three of them or four of them are conceivably good answers, they're not getting it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I do believe that. I think that like, you should be able to say, um, well, I don't like this one and I don't like this one. and Oh, maybe this one. and mm-hmm. uh, Maybe that one. But there has to be at least a couple where they say, I don't like it. Now, when I say eliminate, I don't mean permanently eliminate. And let me give you an example of when I think people eliminate the wrong way. Um, okay. I see students who, <laughs> this is a silly little thing, but they, they will, when they eliminate an answer, they'll actually cross the answer out. Like, not just tick off A, but they will cross the words out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you, and I'm sure you've seen students do that. One yeah. thing is, it takes a long time to do that. Mm-hmm. And two is what happens when you don't find an answer? If you go through all five like that, you've now you've got <laughs> you have you're no closer to finding the answer because you've actually scribbled on every single one of those answers. Mm-hmm. You've crossed out the words. So yeah. w- what I do is I just teach people to just tick off like okay, if you don't like A, then tick off A. If you think mm-hmm. B is a maybe, don't tick it off. If you think C is bad, tick off C. And mm-hmm. yeah, occasionally you're gonna you're gonna have you're going to not like all five, and so you'll have all five, A, B, C, D, E, ticked off. When that happens, then I say, okay, I guess you can lower your standards a little bit, but reread, the, reread them, and when you reread A, if you decide that A really does suck, then you can put another tick mark in the other direction. So now you've got like an X over the letter A, 
Mm-hmm. So that's the way I do it. I don't know. What, what's your perspective on that? Well, that's interesting because um, maybe where our advice is directed at solving, we're focusing on two different problems because the, um, but I don't know. I mean, you have to tell me what you think, but I, what I usually tell people is I say, the first time I go through the five answer choices, I'm looking for the ones that are uh, 100% wrong and I'm crossing those out, which may leave me with two or three, but I'm doing that so that I never have to look back at the ones I crossed out again. I, I guess I'm, I'm a, afraid is not the right word, but I, I, I don't want to get in a situation where I've crossed out all five because then I feel like they're all equal to me, so then I have to go back through all five again. And so even when I think an answer is correct, Maybe this is what I'm trying to prevent people from doing. Even when I feel like an answer is correct, I'm not telling them to select it. I'm just telling them to keep it open. And so, I don't know. I guess I would like them to end up with two or three, so then they can just decide between those. Um, huh. Yeah, I mean, I. so I guess I would like them... Let's back up for a second, okay? Um, mm-hmm. Because here, here's another thing that I think is wrong about this idea that like of process of elimination. I do not think that you need to use process of elimination on every single question. In fact, I think the exact opposite of that. I think that your your primary approach should should now specifically on logical reasoning, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, on logical reasoning, your primary approach should be read the argument figure out what's wrong with the argument, read the question stem, predict the answer before you look at the answer choices, then go into the five answer choices and pick the one that matches your prediction. Um, I think that's the only way to do it, especially for like a flaw question. Because if you didn't identify the flaw when you were reading the argument, I don't think the answer choices are going to help you identify the flaw. The answer choices are going to confuse you, actually. The answer choices are going to make you think that there were things in the argument that actually weren't in the argument. So I, I, do, I do think that on the logical reasoning, the process of elimination thing is a secondary, it's, a, it's, it's your second tool, not your first tool. Your first tool, or you know, let's imagine it's a main conclusion question. You've read the argument, you know what the evidence is, you know what the conclusion is, when you see that the question says which one of the following is the main conclusion of the argument, you should be able to say, oh, well, the main conclusion of the argument was X, Y, Z. Then when you read the five answer choices, I suppose, sure, you're doing a process of elimination, but all you're doing is, I know what I'm looking for, you read A, that's not what I'm looking for, so you tick off A. Mm -hmm. You read B, it's not what you're looking for, so you tick off B. Right. So on a question like that, I mean, surely you would not want them to get down to the end and have two or three answers. Most of the time, wouldn't you want them to have positively identified the correct answer? Well, um, so first of all, I I agree with you about doing the work up front. Um, I think it varies from question to question, and I do... So, for example, for sufficient assumption questions, I want to have... I'm going to predict the answer before I go into the answers. Whereas for something like an inference question, 
I'm less likely to do so. Agreed. I will still try to say, okay, it seems like this seems to be going in this direction, but more open to the idea that it could be something random that I hadn't thought of. Yeah, so, or a necessary assumption question, or a strengthened question, or a weakened question. There, the answer could absolutely be something that you did not predict. Mm-hmm. I, I so I, I, I think I am predicting um, in the same way that you are, and encouraging people to do that too, but then once I have that prediction, I am, I guess I always feel like the, you know, the second most tempting answer is something, I don't want people picking that because it sounds so good, and then more quickly going over the remaining answer choices. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a good tip. That's a good. Sorry, I don't want to interrupt you. But no, that, no, yeah. That is an awesome tip. I mean, uh, a lot of times, or even the reverse of that happens. Like you eliminate A, you eliminate B, you eliminate C, and now when you're reading D, you're reading D less critically than you read A, B, and C because you're like hoping that D or E turns out to be the right answer. Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. I th- that I think is a little bit of a, a leak, right? That's a little bit of like a not efficient thing. I think that you should have equal skepticism on the entire pass through all five of the answer choices. So yeah. if you don't like A, B, C, or D, you shouldn't start rooting for E. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. on the other hand, if you liked A, you shouldn't start like you shouldn't be extra critical of B, C, D, and E. Mm-hmm. Because you might, you know, very frequently, you might get down to E, and you might find an answer that, if you, well, some people wouldn't even read all five, right? Which I think yeah. that's another major mistake. Like you have to read all five answers on the logical reasoning. Yes, definitely. Can I ask you a process of elimination? Can I ask you a logic games question related to process of elimination? Yeah, of okay. course. Um, I have found myself more and more frequently pointing out to my students that. Let's just take two different types of questions. Must be true and could be true. Mm-hmm. This is on the logic games. Yep. Um, on a could be true question, I almost always do it by process of elimination. So what I mean by that okay. is if I read mm-hmm. if I look at A and it looks like A will work, mm-hmm. I will always still go through and eliminate B, C, D, and E just to be sure. So like I if I think A might work, I mm-hmm. probably don't even pencil it out. I probably just say, well, I don't see what, anything that's wrong with that. Let me mm-hmm. see if I can eliminate B, C, D, and E, because if I can, then A is my answer. That's yeah. on a could-be-true question. So I think on could-be-true questions on logic games, I use process of elimination. But if it was a must-be-true question, mm-hmm. I'm much more inclined to... If I see the correct answer, if I or if I see an answer that I know is a must be true, mm-hmm. I'm much more likely to pick it without even looking at the rest of the answer choices. Yeah, yeah. It, um, I w- can I add a couple of things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a couple of thoughts I have is on the could be true questions. I I agree with you. Um, I I would be inclined to sort of say, hmm, that seems like it could be true, but it's easier to see that something can't be. So then it's it's easier to say, okay, yeah, this is definitely wrong. Um, I mean, you could take the time to to actually prove that A could be true, but that itself is, you know, adding time because now you're drawing the whole 
scenario. Well, and, and you also would end up with arbitrary things that are going to happen, right? Like you would say, like, could D be fourth? And you would put D fourth, and then you would have all these blank spaces. And mm -hmm. you would then, I think at some point, necessarily, you would be doing like an arbitrary, like, well, yeah, I could put X here, and I could put Z over here. But then if that doesn't work, like, <laughs> if, if you, you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. Because you've made a bunch of arbitrary additional restrictions on the on that answer choice now, because the 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 answer choice only said could D go fifth, and you put yeah. D fifth, but then you put in a bunch of other shit, and if that mm -hmm. other shit ends up not working, you actually mm -hmm. haven't disproven that A is a could be true because you've put additional restrictions on top of it. Yeah. So rather than trying to go all the way to prove that A actually would work, I would say I don't see what's wrong with that. Mm -hmm. Let me evaluate B, C, D, and E because I might be able to back into this answer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you were going to say one other thing too, I thought. Oh, well, so t actually, two things. So uh, continuing on with could be true. Yeah. Um, since I like to do the if questions first, I'll have oh, yeah, several yeah. diagram, mini diagrams, you know, several previous scenarios that are valid. And so a lot of times, too, if it's just a simple which one following could be true, I will quickly scan over those diagrams to see if any of these things has happened. And if they do, then I might pick an answer uh, proactively based on those diagrams rather than eliminating. Interesting. Okay. Uh, yeah. The the other thought I had was uh, in must be true questions, what I like is that um, especially if it's a question that starts with if. So they've just given you another rule. I create a new diagram or a small diagram for that particular rule. Yep. Um, and then I try to make as many inferences as I can. And if I realize it's a must be true question, then what I'll do is I'll go back to the last inference that I made, which is usually the one that's furthest away from the initial clue. Because if the, let's say the initial clue was T is second, and then I make a bunch of inferences, and the last inference I make is that Z is sixth. Which one of the following well, must be true? And you'll just scan the answer choices looking for Z is sixth. Yeah, they're looking for Z and or you know something like that or, or something that deals with Z or whatever because then uh, and it works a lot of the time because usually the the inference you made last which is the furthest away and thus the hardest to make is the one that they're testing you on and so then I don't even have to read you know answer choices. Yeah, nice. I could definitely see that working. Um, and it does seem as if you agree that on a must be true, you're you're more inclined to positively identify the answer choice and not do process of elimination. Yes. Oh, I guess I should add, if it's just a straight up which one of the following must be true, yeah. and I've done my which, my sorry, my if questions first, yeah. and it seems like it's something hard for me to see from the original rules, and and sometimes you know these must be true questions are deliberately made so that <laughs> it wasn't something that was really obvious from the rules, and that's what makes it a hard question. Is I will use process of elimination by looking at what has happened in previous diagrams that shows that answer choice A doesn't have to happen. For you know, if A says T is second, and I look back at a previous diagram and T wasn't second, then I can quickly eliminate that. So it's kind of going to, I guess. Um, I guess I feel like in, in some cases it can be easier to eliminate in that case because I have all these diagrams. Yeah, I'm going to have to start playing around with doing the if questions first. It's not something that I've done uh, 
I don't haven't historically taught people to do that, but I I I like that idea. Uh, possibly, I think what I've said in the past is if a game doesn't make sense to you, one mm-hmm. way to get like get your foot in the door almost with the game is to do the if questions. Yeah, you should. Um, you know that game that you've talked about before. It's that ordering game. I think it's in Test sixty or fifteen. I think it's Test sixty. Washington, uh, Vancouver, New York, yes. L.A., Toronto, and something else. Yes. So that game, I'm pretty sure it's the it's not the first question because the first question is the traditional, you know, yeah. complete and accurate list question. I think the second question asks, "What must be true?" And I think, if I recall, it's a very hard question, at least in my mind, to prove why the correct answer is correct. Yeah. But if you do question twenty, I think it's an if question, and the the one scenario that you create for that if question disproves all of the wrong answers in 18. So you can, if you do that first and then you go, and then once eventually you come around to that question and you're just like, Oh no, that doesn't have to be true. That doesn't have to be true. Da, 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 da. And then it's just, it's over. So then, and then <laughs> at least in my mind, I guess I'd have to, I've never actually thought about it coming from the other angle, but, um, the, the, then the must be true. The thing that has to be true is kind of like, wow, that's that's good to know, but I wouldn't have ever thought of that. So, interesting. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna definitely give that a shot. If you remember, uh, ask me about it next time. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Cool. Um, anything else on the agenda for today? Oh, I should say uh, two things. One is, if you want to contact me, you can reach me at nathan at foxlsat.com. and if you would like to talk to Ben. You can get him at ben at strategyprep.com. We'd love to hear from you if you have questions, comments, if you have ideas for things to talk about on the show. We'd love to hear about it. You can also comment on our show blog, which is thinkinglsat.com. Uh, the second thing I wanted to say is that we have, Jacob sent us some copies of this book, Let's LSAT. So uh, I have a few copies of this book to give away. And if you would like a copy of the book, what should we what should we have them do, Ben? Anything? Um, I guess email us, and then we'll. What will we do? Should Tell we have Jacob. Them email us, or should we have? No, I've got the copy, so I can send them out. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Should we have them email us, or should we have them post on the on the Thinking LSAT blog? Um, how about either one? Either, either way, yeah. Email us or uh, post on the Thinking LSAT blog. And what you have to do is say, yes, I want a copy of the book. And, and you, uh, the first three will get a copy of the book. Sounds good. And if they email us and they, I don't know, I guess I would be curious what their thoughts were. So if they wouldn't mind leaving some comments on the blog, that'd be great. Just so we know. Yeah, we would love to get some some feedback on the show. This is episode 10 now. We've put about, jeez, uh, Ben, we've already put like 12 or 13 hours worth of uh Content out there, so I'm I'm proud of our achievement. It's been it's been fun. I've I've learned a lot. I feel like. Yeah, yeah. Likewise, thanks. It's been fun. Cool. Okay, so that's it for episode ten, and uh, we will talk to you guys again soon.